0: This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. This is The New Way We Work from Fast Company Magazine, where we take listeners on a journey through the changing landscape of our work lives and explain what we need to build the future we want. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor, Kate Davis. episode we talked about why so many major companies can't seem to move the needle on their diversity numbers it's the D part of D E and I of course getting more people of color in the door is just one part of the challenge once a workplace is more diverse how does the culture welcome and include everyone and how can leaders build a workplace that is more equal unfortunately this is where so many companies falter and as a result struggle to retain people of color and those from underrepresented groups There are a lot of pieces that make up an equitable and inclusive workplace. We've talked about microaggressions on an episode of this show last year. They are actions and words, both intentional and unintentional, that create a hostile workplace against a certain group of people. But microaggressions take a lot of different forms. And beyond them, there are also entrenched issues like a cultural bias towards white supremacy and biased in assumptions around what's quote unquote professional. In a future episode, we'll cover what hiring managers are really talking about when they say culture fit and the exhausting work of code switching. But on this episode, we're going to get into what bias, white privilege, and tone policing look like at work. And joining me to help break down some of these topics is Mimi Fox Melton. Mimi is the acting CEO of the San Francisco based nonprofit Code 2040. Mimi, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Kate. So before we jump into it, and there's so much to jump into, uh, for (laughs) listeners who aren't familiar with Code 2040, can you give me a quick overview of your company's history and your mission and and what you do?
1: Yeah, so Code 2040 has been around for almost 10 years, and we are on a mission to activate, connect, and mobilize the largest racial equity community in tech. And our purpose is really about identifying and dismantling the structural barriers that prevent the full participation of Black and Latinx people in the innovation economy. Our name, Code 2040, uh, is based on the, the beginning of the decade when the U.S. will be majority people of color. And so when we look at tech and see how few Black and Latinx people work in the industry, we really want to envision a world when the U.S. becomes minority people of color that we are represented proportionately um, in the tech industry to our demographics in the U.S.
0: Yeah, that's so important, I think, for people to realize is I think a lot of people think people of color are are this smaller group of people in the U.S., but as you point out, it's they're, they're going to the majority of the people in the U.S. in not too long from now. Exactly. So, Let's first talk about what white privilege looks like in the workplace. It's something that it's really obvious to people who don't have it, but it can be something that's really difficult for people who have always benefited from it to grasp. Yeah,
1: you're right. If you're a person of color in the US, especially if you're Black, Latinx, or Indigenous, you see it from the moment you understand what's happening around you. And white folks often can see the downside of being black or Latinx or indigenous, but don't see the upside of being white. So I think about privilege through the lenses of impacted groups. And an impacted group is would be a gender race of folks, um, ability plays into this as well, who are historically and currently disenfranchised to some degree for characteristics that they have no control over. Trans folks are an impacted group, people with disabilities, Black folks are impacted. And privilege is the opposite of impact, right? So the fewer impacted identity one has, the more privilege one has. And I can give an example. So a straight, white, able-bodied man would have significant privilege in the cultural context of the US. It's important to say also that within groups, there are nuances because, because some folks have more than one impacted identity And so a Black trans woman with a disability would likely be the most impacted person in any group. And alternatively, like going back to the straight white guy I mentioned, if he was, say, 6'3 with a full head of hair and fit, he would have more privilege than a white straight man who was short and bald, as an example.
0: So thinking about this like how white privilege plays out in our everyday lives and how white privilege plays out at work like examples that that come to mind and I for me and I'd love to hear, you know, your take on it so people can kind of visualize what this actually means in their their daily lives. So like white privilege for a a person out in the world means that when a cop pulls you over, you're not afraid that you might get shot. Uh, white privilege in the office for maybe this, you know, straight white man that you're speaking of means when he speaks up in a meeting, he's not afraid that somebody's gonna think he sounds too forceful.
1: Yeah, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who's published in the Atlantic and um, a couple of books now talks about this as the benefit of the doubt. So the benefit of the doubt that white folks get that they know what they're talking about, that they're not a criminal, that they are college educated. White folks often don't have to do prove any of that to exist in the world, and Black folks often do. You know, folks assume that we are uneducated, and we see this when Barack Obama, president, former president, right, speaks, and folks say, oh my gosh, he's so articulate. Why would you assume otherwise, right? We don't say that about white folks. So it's that whiteness is seen as the default culture of the U.S., and it's so default that we often don't even think that whiteness has culture, and so everything is compared and sort of measured against whiteness as the standard.
0: Yeah, I, I like that that framing of the benefit of the doubt because it is like, oh, if I'm getting pulled over, I'm assuming it's for you know nothing bad's gonna happen to me other than maybe I'll get a ticket because I was speeding. If I speak up in a meeting, people are going to listen to the words I say, not how I say them. I'm just can move easily through my life. And and we touched on this a little bit when a company culture has kind of this baked in bias towards whiteness. And that's most company cultures because, you know, likely because they have a, a lack of significant representation from people of color historically and presently. How does that kind of baked in bias towards whiteness manifest itself at the company? That's
1: such a good question, and you mentioned some of it in casual ways, the way that we hear folks' communication, what the definition of professional is, is often the way white people communicate, so that often means lack of conflict, it means depersonalized. It means that you're not talking about personal matters. Those are culturally, those are not how black folks when black folks are together interact, right? And so that's where the word code switching comes from that when we are in the workplace or when we're in other majority white spaces, we code switch from how we are culturally with our folks to how we believe we need to be in order to be successful in white spaces. And of course, we all have bias, right? How we grow up, how we see the world, bias is just seeing certain things favorably and other things unfavorably. The challenge with bias is that when it's combined with power, either as a manager or a CEO or institutional power, as in most police officers are white, the judiciary is mostly white, then that means that folks who have historical power in this country have been able to build systems that reflect their beliefs and kind of reflect default culture, which is how we get to professionalism, like I mentioned earlier, is a white standard. And so if you're unprofessional, you can't get a job even if the way that that's defined is in contrast to who you are and how you operate within, you know, your culture at home.
0: Yeah, I was going to say I think that that's that part that like how we define what is professional is something that again, most people or most white people especially have not really given much thought to. Like it seems like one of those things that just exists, like wearing a suit is professional, having your hair a certain way is professional, and we forget that all of these things are a, completely made up and B, made up by a standard of whiteness. And, you know, I think we, you know, an example of, of seeing that play out in a workplace cultures, we've heard a lot of about um, the way that black women's hair is policed, right? That you can't have natural hair, that your hair has to be straightened, that you kind of have to have the, in order to be professional, you have to try to make yourself look white in some way. Yeah.
1: And that's where bias shows up in systems as well, because we codify, codify those standards into the ways that we hire and the ways that we promote. So if we define good communication by white tenants, so for example, we don't, we're not in conflict with each other. We don't raise our voices when we're passionate about something, then folks who come from cultures where passion is noisy or communication means humility and deference as another an alternate example those folks are never going to measure up to a white standard and so therefore may not be hired or may not advance and at code 2040 we talk a lot about this in hiring where are we codifying default white culture into our hiring practices and using those as proxies for intelligence, Mm. work ethic, and leadership.
0: Yeah. And I think that that part about communication and how we communicate is so key to it. So it's it's kind of like, you know, the example you gave about calling Barack Obama articulate, like who says what's articulate and what's the standard for being articulate? But then I think the other the other element that you're touching on a lot is also like. Who you know when you talk about like speaking with passion, like who gets to be angry, who gets to raise their voice, who gets to be passionate, who's what's expected of different people, and that's kind of one of these elements we've talked about a little bit is tone policing. Can you explain what tone policing is and what it looks like? Sure, you hit on it really well. Tone policing is a tool
1: that is very prevalent in dominant in white culture, and I believe it really centers in conflict avoidance. So the person who's using tone policing as a tool is devaluing or invalidating another person's words or feelings because the words or feelings are communicated in a way that the receiver feels is inappropriate. And so most often we see this when words are said in anger. Usually it happens when feedback is being given. So there's a very common... (sighs) joke inside joke in the black community that if a white woman at work says something racist sexist just inappropriate to a black woman and the black woman sits her down and says hey this was inappropriate um, and it hurt me and this was the impact i mean nine times out of ten the black woman can expect that the white woman will say I can't even hear what you're saying because you're so angry how am i supposed to take this feedback when you're upset that's tone policing because it's really focusing on the tone that the words are said in rather than the content of the message
0: yeah and that i mean that kind of we did an episode last year about microaggressions and that i feel like the two kind of go hand in hand they with the example you're giving is like you know it's it's I'm not going to focus on you. I'm going to focus on how you're, what you're saying, how and how it makes me feel. Right. And it, you know, it's, it's more about my comfortability, my standard, my, you know, the standard of whiteness than it is about allowing, yes, you know, people of color to be legitimate, real people that raise their voices when they get angry, you know, right. that this, this idea of, of conflict avoidance that you're, you're talking about, of, about like, you know, who's allowed to get to get angry. I mean, I think everybody feels passionately about things at work, gets angry about things at work, you know, has conflict at work. But this this tone policing that you're talking about, it sounds like it's you're never allowed to feel your feelings, for, yeah. for lack of a better word. Yeah. And it really goes back to privilege.
1: Who's allowed to say you are violating the norms of communication of whiteness of this office. And so I don't have to listen to you. And the part of it that is extremely dehumanizing and invisibilizing is that I'm in this conversation because you've harmed me, because you've done wrong. And what happens in that moment is that, I'll speak for myself, is that even if I'm I'm offering this feedback in a way that feels very controlled to me because, right, I know that I'm in this environment. I know that I'm going to be um, invalidated if I show emotion, but my voice is shaking and I'm tone policed. It makes me want to jump across across the table and strangle you, right? And so it really feeds into this cycle of anti-Blackness at work that uses tropes, About blackness, like aggressiveness and anger and violence, as the hallmark behavior that the person being tone policed is being accused of. So it really turns the tables, and it's a way to take back power when a white person feels that truly that they're being held accountable in a way that their white privilege should protect them from.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's those are really important points. I think you know that. I would kind of boil it down to and what it sounds like you're saying is that it's that people are focusing on in tone policing, you're focusing on how the person is saying the thing and totally negating the thing that they're actually saying.
1: Yeah, we talk about this at Code 2040 as intent over impact. So often the opposite of tone policing you know folks have heard a lot about karens nowadays um and we also talk about the sort of the other end of the spectrum which is the white woman's tears so for the folks who haven't been following karen is a derogatory term for a white woman whose white authority has been threatened you know she thinks that a black person is doing something that is outside of their privilege like walking the dog or having a barbecue and so she calls the cops, knowing that calling the cops on Black people could be a death sentence. The other side of that is a white woman's tears. And so that's a term that we, when when Black folks were talking about, yeah, I gave this woman feedback and she just burst into tears and said, I didn't mean to do it that way. Or why did you interpret it that way? You think I'm a bad person. And it is another way of evading responsibility and really ignoring the impact of what was done. Your intention doesn't always matter. What you meant to do doesn't always matter. This is what you did and this was the impact of it. And so at Code2040, when we're working with companies, managers, leaders, we're really helping folks be willing to sit in accountability and take responsibility for the impact of actions regardless of what the intention was.
0: This episode of The New Way We Work is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. All of these issues that make a company less equitable and less inclusive and therefore a more hostile and toxic you know, work environment for underrepresented folks, the burden to change these things obviously should not fall on the underrepresented people who are you know, the the ones that this is happening to, but what can individuals do at every level to, to change something that seems so pervasive, that seems so baked into our culture and our biases and our re- reactions? I think that the reason that
1: companies, families, friend groups, you name it, relies on people of color, especially Black folks to do the emotional labor is because there's very little education, competence, understanding within the white community about these topics. You know, a lot of white folks, even sort of your kind of good liberal white folks, (laughs) um, realized the last year that things were really wrong in this country and black people have experienced that as long as we've been alive. So, You know, I think white folks look around and say, well, you seem to know a lot about this. Help us. And I think it's important to name why that's a problem, because it means that when I'm in discussion with you as a white person about your bias, I am essentially representing my own humanity and my own rights to be alive in this country and to thrive to you and often to the white person, it's an academic or intellectual conversation. And that power dynamic, that difference is extremely emotionally fraught for the person of color. And because going back to tone policing, if as the um, the person of color starts to explain things, like what do you mean you don't understand that police kill black people? And you know we get upset. It it feels intense, and then the worst case scenario is that the person we're trying to talk to is like, "Well, this is too intense. I can't. I can't hear you because you're, you know, you're upset." Um, and so that dynamic happens often. That's the why. I think that the the first thing folks, white folks can do is to start educating themselves. I mean, you can do a, a simple Google search and find 20 books. They some of them were on the bestseller list last year, that helps break things down, both written by black people and written by white people and every other race that exists in the U.S., I think has, you know, folks have a perspective on this. I would start there and journal, you know, like ask yourself the hard questions, get a therapist. To me, the bottom line is if you're asking someone else to do emotional labor, you should be paying them, whether that's a therapist, whether that's a consultant, this is exhausting, you know, and the, antidepressants are not free and nor is the, are the other sorts of things that we as people of color need to do to take care of ourselves in this environment in this country and so don't ask folks to do that for free there's no picking your brain that's a very common oh. thing i hear let <laughs> me ask you a couple of questions it's like i it may take me 2 weeks to recover from you picking my brain you know mm-hmm. um but there's a lot of self work to do and something that i've seen with white folks in particular is There's this desire when white folks kind of have their eye-opening moment that they're like, I need to learn more about Black people. And that is pretty common. But the problem is that actually you need to learn about whiteness, right? You need to learn about your culture and where you, you and your ancestors chose whiteness in order to assimilate into this country and what that meant and why we're so folks are so angry at Black people who literally can't choose whiteness for doing our own thing and like celebrating our own culture, right? That, yeah. So I think that there's the, it's personal work and that counts at work too you know the workplace equivalent of asking the black people to do the labor is saying oh we're going to give the ergs fifty thousand um, dollars employee resource groups right so that black folks can bring in some speakers and do something for black history month and sort of educate the rest of us and i don't want to speak ill of that Th- those are resources that ergs you know self-organize and want in many cases But the responsibility of changing company culture can't be on the ERGs or the one DEI person that you have working in a company of 2000 people.
0: And it's why like your diversity initiatives and your diversity committees can't just be like, oh, let's find the the four people of color that we have here and ask them to to spearhead this initiative. Right. Right.
1: Or I often hear companies say, oh, well, we don't have a problem here. We surveyed our employees and they said it's really great and i'll ask okay did you segment the data based on race no Well, that might be interesting because the black folks may have a difference of opinion than the white folks, or they did segment the data and they say, black people love it here. And I said, how many were in the survey? And they are like three. And I said, yeah, those three are probably pretty clear that there's no anonymity for the three Mm -hmm, black people in the mm -hmm. company. And so whether they're giving you the truth or whether they're telling you the version of the truth they think you want to hear so that they can keep their jobs is open to argument.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And I've actually I saw I saw that question asked recently. A, a black person was asked to fill out a you know survey like that and said, you know, I want to tell them like, I think my workplace is really toxic. I want to tell them. But like, there's not very many of us. They're going to figure out like it's anonymous, but they can certainly figure out who said it. And I don't want to lose my job. It's like those calculations like, yeah, I'll just keep my mouth shut and say, sure, you're doing a great job, you know, and it's another one of those kind of burdens they're going to put up with. Yes. It it sounds like if you are, you know, I'm trying trying to kind of parse through everything you said and, and summarize it in, in, in an easy-to-digest way and let me know if, if this is on track. If you're a, a good-intentioned white person listening to this and you're like, okay, well, where can I start? I mean, obviously, you know, educate yourself, read books. Don't ask the, the two black people in the office to help you figure it out. But I, I think it sounds like also you know when we're talking about like the tone policing and the the kind of bias towards towards whiteness is maybe an easy like first step is is policing your own thoughts and your own you know biases of when somebody says something and it rubs you the wrong way to think about like where is that coming from what is is that because you know would i feel the same way if A white colleague was saying that. Would I feel the same way? Is is my standard of of professionalism based? What is it based on? Kind of just like assess, starting to assess your own biases and where your your uncomfortability comes from.
1: I think that that is a good approach if you are a self reflective person who knows how to be honest with yourself. Mm. And there, the person who this is the hardest for is the person who sees themselves as the good guy. Mm. So I'm a good person, I'm a democrat, I'm I you know donate money to homeless folks. If your identity as a good person is how you truly see yourself in the world and your often folks who see themselves as good people are unwilling to accept any evidence to the contrary. So if that's you, for example, if, if no one in your family or your workplace has given you feedback in the last 3, 6, 12 months, probably it's because you're not creating relationships where feedback is freely given, folks don't see you as open to feedback, and likely um, it's going to be more challenging for you to be honest with yourself. That being said, if, you know, there are many people who have like healthy and robust internal systems that can ask themselves questions and be honest. And I think that's a really important place to go. I often ask why just like If I'm coaching someone else or even in my own journal, you know, this is what I think I should do. Why? 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 Just keep asking the question where does that come from? What belief is that rooted in? What do I think is normal here? And even asking in the workplace, why do we do it this way? Why do we? look at this hiring rubric this says communication what does that mean is do i is communication the same to me as it is to you have we defined that have we unpacked that um you know you don't have to have a degree in you know black studies or critical race theory in order to ask is the way that we've always done this still the right way was it ever the right way
0: yeah yeah i think that that being open to receive feedback creating a culture you know of feedback and like taking you know i th- i think you know something that's is really important to realize is that feedback is such a gift you know like it's you know in the same way that you're talking about you know it's black people do not owe you and a tutorial in racism but when you get feedback it's such a gift that somebody took a risk to tell you you know what how you need to improve, how what you said made them feel, how what you did, you know, impacted them, like take it as the, as the gift that it is, which is so difficult to do because I think people do feel like it's bumping up against, I feel like I'm a good person. And you just said something bad about me. It doesn't make you a bad person. It means that you made a mistake. And I think, you know, people realizing that everybody makes mistakes, like you cannot go through your life never being wrong and if you think that you've gone you know to your point if you think you've gone through the last six months and you haven't been wrong (laughs) you're wrong you know (laughs) like yeah yeah
1: robin d'angelo um who is a professor and writer a white woman um who wrote white fragility has a really good video um on youtube somewhere about receiving feedback from a black woman um, and how she, the process that she went through when she made a mistake. Um, and I think it is such a beautiful and imperfect way to sit in accountability. Uh, so I really recommend that. In addition to Robin D'Angelo, I always suggest that folks read the book, So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo. She um, is just breaks down the sort of brief history, current, and how to do better in a wide range of topics, including Black women's hair, like you mentioned earlier. Um, And I think it's like a good uh, sort of primer, uh, especially folks who are diving into this topic and are just worried, I'm gonna do something wrong. And I don't know how to not do anything wrong. That can often freeze white folks in their learning journey and like if that's your concern you know for folks who are listening who are like i just don't want to cause injury um i think so you want to talk about race is a good place to start to kind of get a primer on here are the places that you can have some confidence that you uh so you that you won't kind of make major blunders
0: yeah that's great i think i think those are really helpful resources and people yeah kind of need to uh, to figure it out kind of on their own and feel like do something rather than be so frozen in their fear that they're going to say the wrong thing that they do nothing at all.
1: One thing that I would push back on you, Kate, about doing it on your own is that's actually a tenant of white culture is that all of our learning is by ourselves and then we can come together and be together. And I think that's part of where white culture struggles with conflict avoidance is that we shouldn't work this out together. Each of us as individuals should work this out separately. And so I know that's a little bit of a paradox that's like, don't do it alone, but also don't like ask for unpaid emotional labor from black people, but there are other versions of this, right? Like in the last year, white folks have started anti-racist book clubs with someone who's maybe a little further ahead than they are in their racial equity journey so that they can learn in cohort and together and have emotional support from each other. And it's hard work, right? So like having a place where you can kind of struggle in the difficulty of it um, and be encouraged, but without, requiring a black or brown person to do that labor or hire a black or brown person who does that as part of their career but there is a lot of value to practicing this stuff together and realizing you know i can actually take accountability and be forgiven and move on and it doesn't mean that i'm not a good person it actually means that i'm doing a really good job at becoming a better person
0: That's great. That's thank you. That's that's really helpful. And that's a that's a good way to think about it. Mimi Fox Melton, acting CEO of Code2040. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Kate. And that's all for this episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to subscribe to The New Way We Work wherever you listen. Also, I encourage you to go back in our feed and hear our episodes so far this season. We've talked about the so-called pipeline problem, and we've taken a look at the truth behind diversity reports. If you like this episode, leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. The New Way We Work is produced by Joshua Christensen.